finally, an Italian opera is on the menu for today. Gaetano Donizetti's tragic opera, Lucia de Lammermoor. He wrote this opera at the height of his creative prowess. Many consider it his finest work. Personally, I've never seen a live production of it, but both the recent Metropolitan Opera and La Scala productions I've seen on video have been very satisfying. My first exposure to the show was a film version Anna Mofo did in 1971. The singing was dubbed, and I remember not being impressed with the cinematography. Uh, the opera eventually got uh, on my, onto my radar, though, once again, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, but I'll save that tidbit for later. Donizetti lived from 1797 to 1848. He was the son of a poor pawn shop dealer uh, whose family had no particular musical background. Nevertheless, Gaetano uh, received a solid education in music from Simon Mayer, a noted composer of the time who happened to be the choir master at the cathedral in Donizetti's hometown. Both Mayer and Donizetti wrote 70 operas, 7-0 operas apiece, show-offs. Gaetano wrote Lucia de Lammermoor before, during, and after writing other operas at the same time. He said of himself, I have a vast mind, swift talent, ready fantasy, and I'm a thunderbolt at composing. Lucia was premiered in September 1835 at the Teatro de San Carlo in Naples. Although it did not receive many subsequent performances there at the time, it firmly established itself in the opera repertoire worldwide in fairly short order. The story is based upon a novel, The Bride of the Lammermoors, by Saint, uh, by Saint, by Sir Walter Scott. I won't canonize him just yet. Um, at the time Donizetti was composing it, continental Europe was quite taken by things British, uh, and Donizetti wrote a trio of operas about Tudor England, sometimes referred to as the three Donizetti queens because they deal with the women associated with Henry VIII. Anne Boleyn, her opera, Anno Boleyn, uh, Mary Stuart, Maria Stuarta, and uh, Elizabeth I, except that uh, opera is called Robert Devereux. Uh, Lucia takes place in Scotland, which is just as good, and it is based supposedly, according to Sir Walter at least, on historical events. The opera is especially noted for Lucia's mad scene in Act 3, but I'm going to keep my powder dry and not reveal anything until we get there. Suffice it to say, Lucia's nerves have been a little out of sorts uh, because her mother has died recently. In Sir Walter's novel, Edgar Ravenswood, father, uh, his father was stripped of his title of nobility for supporting King James II of England, who was known as King James VII of Scotland, uh, deposed during the Glorious Revolution. The Ravenswood estate was usurped by Lucia's family, the Ashtons. So Edgar has a vendetta against Lucia's family in general, and on her elder brother Enrico, who is the current major domo. At the same time, however, Edgar is in love with Lucia. It's no wonder Lucia is described as having delicate nerves. Not only has her mother just died, her boyfriend wants to kill her brother. Uh, what's worse, Enrico wants Lucia to marry a man she doesn't love, Lord Arturo Bucklaw. Uh, one shouldn't feel too sorry for the tenor who sings the role of Arturo, even though his part in the opera is pretty small, really only one scene since he gets murdered at the beginning of Act 3. He gets paid just the same as the coloratura who sings Lucia. 
Okay, <clears throat> these are the state of affairs at, as the curtain rises. Act 1 finds a group of men searching for an intruder on the estate of Enrico, Lucia, and the rest of the Ashton clan. It turns out the intruder is Edgardo of Ravenswood, who has been having assignations with Lucia. Enrico has a pretty strong hatred for Edgardo. In fact, uh, when he's told that Lucia loves Edgardo, Enrico says uh, of his sister, Ah, rather than see you guilty of so perfidious a love, if you were struck by a thunderbolt, my grief would be less bitter. Enrico is accompanied by the family chaplain, Raimundo, who cautions Enrico about the dangers of hatred. Of all the characters in Lucia, I find Raimundo the weakest. Arturo, is just, he just kind of shows up, gets married, and dies. Uh, Raimundo, on the other hand, has the ability to insert himself into the fray, which he does once, once uh, but does little more than, say, have a care. The scene ends with Enrico swearing vengeance against Edgardo and upsetting the lovebird's relationship. Wretched pair, he storms, the storm of my terrible fury is upon you. The evil flame that consumes you I shall quench with blood. The scene changes to another part of the grounds in which stands an old fountain. The music covering the scene change is a lovely harp solo. The harp doesn't show up a lot as a solo instrument in operas, so don't go nipping out for popcorn. Lucia enters with her maid. Lucia is agitated because she has seen a ghost, namely the specter of a young woman who had been murdered by a Ravenswood ancestor. The ghost, well, let's let Lucia describe it. I saw her lips moving as if she were speaking, and with her lifeless hand she seemed to beckon me to her. For a moment she stood motionless, then suddenly vanished, and the waters, so clear before, reddened as with blood. Lucia's maid sees all this as a bad omen and warns her to call off the whole relationship with Edgardo. Enter Edgardo. He's on his way to France and comes to say goodbye to Lucia. He admits to Lucia that he vowed to avenge himself upon her brother for the disgrace suffered by the Ravenswood family. So Edgardo's in a bit of a pickle. He's in love with Lucia, but he has vowed to wage eternal war on her kin. Yeah, okay, let's take a break. Perhaps Edgardo would have done well to understand how vows work. Vows are understood as acts of religion, that is, when people make a vow, they're making a promise to God about a possible and better good, and the fulfillment of that promise is an act of worship. The word vow is often extended to mean any sort of solemn promise one takes, regardless to whom that promise is made. In this case, Edgardo has vowed vengeance upon his father's grave, so I suppose he'll have to answer to his father if he fails to fulfill the vow. Well, such a vow doesn't seem to fit the bill insofar as the promise wasn't made to God. Even if it was, vengeance certainly cannot be considered under the heading of religious acts to be a possible and better good. Uh, what is more, it appears that Gardo's vow was a private one. No one in an official capacity was around to hear him make it. Private vows can be commuted to other better works, if necessary, and in this case, Edgardo wants to end the bad blood between him and Enrico by marrying Lucia. Sounds like a better good than slaying the entire Ashton family. 
So misguided Edgardo could have avoided all this bother if he realized that his vow made upon his father's grave has no true binding force. As always, had he realized this, there would be no story to tell. Edgardo's off to France, but he wants to join himself solemnly to Lucia, so the two enter a clandestine marriage. He tells Lucia, Here, pledge yourself eternally before heaven to be my bride. God hears us, God sees us. Church and altar is a loving heart. To your destiny I link mine. I am your betrothed. Lucia, in turn, pledges herself eternally to Edgardo, and the exchange rings as tokens of this vow. Once again, let's stop and consider what goes into a clandestine marriage. First, I will avoid making a pun about clandestine marriages being fated only to take place in Scotland. Uh, Second, I will admit that I failed to avoid making said pun. Third, clandestine marriages have been a useful plot device all over literature. Romeo and Juliet clandestinely married before Friar Lawrence. In the adaptation of Shakespeare's play West Side Story, Tony and Maria used mannequins. Oh well, anyway, a clandestine marriage is, uh, was understood to occur when a man and a woman, like Edgardo and Lucia, exchanged their consent to enter a marital relationship like Edgardo and Lucia. In the Catholic Church, prior to the Council of Trent, which concluded in 1563, this exchange of consent did not need to be witnessed by a member of the clergy. This is because the ancient Roman law understanding of marriage was that the party's consent was all that mattered. Consummation followed the exchange of consent, and that was deemed an essential manifestation of that consent. Modern jurisdictions allow for such things as common law marriages, which are kind of the same thing, but not really. Anyway, clandestine marriages made matters tricky when it came to establishing legitimacy of children and inheritance rights. The Council of Trent mandated that only those marriages would be recognized as valid that are celebrated before an ordained minister, deacon, priest, or bishop, and two other witnesses. In this case, there are tons of reasons why this exchange of consent between Edgardo and Lucia is problematic. If Edgardo is Catholic, his exchange of consent with Lucia is invalid because of what the Council of Trent decreed. If consummation is a requirement for establishing the marital bond, we can presume it didn't happen since Lucia's maid was lurking around nearby. In any event, they believed they had both bound themselves inextricably to each other, which is all that matters. If a wandering canon lawyer had happened upon them at this moment, he would have advised them of the non-binding nature of their pledged troth, and once again there'd be no story to tell. Act 2 opens with Enrico in a lather. No, this isn't the barber of Seville. Uh, The lather he's in results from some political problems he's having. In order to firm up his political position and save himself from ruination and even death, he has offered Lucia's hand in marriage to Arturo Bucklaw. He, of course, knows that Lucia and Edgardo have been seeing each other. In fact, um, he has been, that is Enrico, uh, he's been intercepting the mail of our two lovebirds that they've been exchanging. And in order to sour Lucia's love for Edgardo, her brother presents her with a forged letter, supposedly written by Edgardo, showing that he no longer loves Lucia and has taken up with another woman. Enrico figures his sister will forget about her old flame and warm up to Arturo. He's wrong. 
Lucia refuses, and Enrico warns her, If you betray, betray me, my fate is sealed forever. You rob me of honor and life and deliver me to the executioner's axe. In your dreams you will see me, an angry, menacing specter. And we know that Lucia has had a pretty poor track record with specters. Remember the maiden at the fountain in Act 1? So she reluctantly agrees, intimating that death seems like a not-so-bad alternative under the present conditions. I should also mention Raimundo is on hand to inform Lucia that the clandestine vows are invalid because no sacred minister was present. Hey, Raimundo, you're sounding pretty Catholic for a Calvinist minister. Arturo and the crowd arrives for a happy wedding between him and Lucia. Just as Lucia joylessly puts her hand to the marriage contract, indeed, she calls it her death warrant, Edgardo rushes in, angry that Lucia has spurned his love, and he is ready to rekindle his vengeful wrath against Enrico. Edgardo sees that Lucia is wavering and says, "'Who curbs me at such a moment? Who stemmed the flood of my anger?' Her grief, her terror, are the proof, are the proof of her remorse. But like a withered rose, she hovers between death and life. I surrender, I am touched. I love you, heartless girl, I love you still. Here begins a famous bit of music from the opera, a sextet, in which Enrico, Edgardo, Lucia, Raimundo, Elisa, the maid, and poor Arturo all comment on what they are feeling. Enrico is pretty annoyed that Edgardo's at Edgardo's intrusion and challenges him to a duel. Raimundo warns that God will be angry if they fight. He says, Respect in me the awful majesty of God. In his name I command you to lay down your anger and your swords. Raimundo shows Edgardo the signed wedding contract. Enraged, he throws his ring back at her and demands her return his. Edgardo then curses Lucia. You have betrayed heaven and love. Accursed be the moment when I first fell in love with you, evil, abominable brood. I should have fled from you, abominable, accursed. I, shall have, I should have fled from you. As if that's not enough, Edgardo eggs the crowd on to kill him. Kill me and bridegroom to the marriage shall be the sacrifice of a betrayed heart. The threshold bathed in my blood will be a sweet sight for the wench. Over my bloodless corpse she will tread more gaily to the altar. With that he storms from the gathering. General mayhem ensues and Lucia faints overwhelmed with emotion. Act 3 begins with uh, the crowd celebrating the union of Lucia and Arturo. They sing, let us raise our voices with wild jubilation to rouse Scotland from shore to shore and warn our perfidious enemies that fortune smiles on us again. We are happier and more fearsome, favored by a powerful protector. As they dance and generally carouse, Raimundo enters and delivers some horrible news. He says, from the apartments where I had left Lucia with her husband came a moan, a cry as from a man in his death throes. I ran into the room. Oh, what a terrible calamity. Arturo was lying on the floor, mute, cold, covered with blood, and Lucia was clutching a dagger which belonged to the murdered man. Just then, the blood-drenched Lucia wanders into the room. 
This is the famous mad scene of the opera. Lucia had been battered by a series of stressful events. Her mother died recently. Her boyfriend, to whom she was secretly betrothed and apparently has, has been unfaithful, has returned to find her marrying Arturo and has cursed her. Her brother plans on killing her former lover in a duel, and Arturo promised his mother that she could live with him after the honeymoon. Okay, I made that last part up. However, Lucia has been pushed over the edge, and she murdered Arturo in a fit of insanity. The scene is a wonderful bit of operatic writing. First, the libretto reflects poor Lucia's loss of her grip on reality. She sings, I was stirred by the sweet sound of his voice. Ah, that voice won his heart of mine. Edgardo, I am yours. Edgardo, ah, my Edgardo. Yes, I am yours again. I escaped from your enemies. An icy shiver creeps in my bosom. Every nerve quivers. My step falters. Sit with me a while near the fountain. Alas, the terrible specter rises and parts us. Alas, alas, Edgardo, Edgardo. Ah, the specter parts us. Here let us hide, Edgardo, at the foot of the altar. It is strewn with roses. Celestial harmony. Do you not hear it? Ah, strains of our wedding hymn. The ceremony awaits us. Oh, how happy I am, Edgardo, Edgardo, how happy I am. Oh, joy that I feel but cannot express. The incense is burning. The sacred torches are glowing all around. Here is the minister. Give me your hand. Oh, happy day, at last I am yours. At last you are mine. God has given you to me. Second, Donizetti's music, both melodically and orchestration, capture Lucia's insanity. I mention the orchestration because, like the harp solo in Act I, Donizetti employs a novel instrument in the pit, the glass harmonica. If you have never heard one played, or have never even heard of the instrument, imagine the sound of running a wetted finger around the rim of a crystal wine glass. The glass harmonica is a series of increasingly smaller crystal bowls, nested one within the next, that form a sort of keyboard, and these bowls are mounted on a central shaft that spins them in a box uh, filled partially with water. The player's fingers lightly touch the rotating bowls, each tuned to a different pitch, and produce a haunting, eerie sound, the sort of sound that exquisitely accompanies Lucia's madness. Playing glasses by rubbing a finger around the rim has existed for centuries. An Irishman, Richard Pockrich, is credited with being the first to make a musical instrument of this party novelty. He used separate vessels rather than a series of interfitting bowls. Benjamin Franklin thought that up. The instrument pretty much disappeared in the mid-19th century. Some claimed the sound from the instrument drove people to insanity. Others, more scientific folks, believed the lead used to make the crystal bowls leached into the player's fingers, resulting in the player's insanity. Some examples of specific writing for the glass harmonica, other than Lucia de Lamamore, exist. Beethoven and Camille Saint-Saëns used it, and Richard Strauss, who died in 1949 and was noted for his abilities as an orchestrator, called for it in his opera, Die Frau ohne Schatten. Mozart also wrote a piece for glass harmonica, and um, I'll give you a little taste of it.
Unfortunately, glass harmonicas were hard to come by in Donizetti's day, so he had to rewrite the music for two flutes. If you check on YouTube for Anna Natrepko's uh, rendition of Lucia, you will see her mad scene accompanied by a glass harmonica. In fact, I'll play a little piece of that at the close of this talk. I must admit, my love for Gilbert and Sullivan comes in here. In their 1887 operetta, Ruddy Gore, Gilbert created the character Mad Margaret. She has been driven to insanity for love of Sir Despard Murgatroyd, who, because he has been cursed, has jilted her. Mad Margaret's first appearance on stage is accompanied by music that Sullivan intended his audience to think of Lucia. Lucia de Lammermoor had its uh, London premiere in 1838, so it had built up about a 50-year reputation and familiarity with Victorian audiences. So much for the glass harmonica. The final scene takes place among the tombs of the Ravenswood family. Edgardo arrives, ready to fight his duel with Enrico. He has decided that the only way out of his predicament is to die at the hands of Enrico. Lucia has married Arturo, and because he still loves her, he does not wish to kill her brother. He begs his ancestors for forgiveness in failing to carry out his avowed revenge. He says, Tombs of my fathers, last son of an unhappy race, receive me, I implore you. My anger's brief fire is quenched. I will fall on my foe's sword. For me, life is a horrible burden. The whole universe is a desert for me without Lucia. Once again, Gilbert and Sullivan come to the rescue. In the Pirates of Penzance, Major General Stanley lied to the pirates in order to save his daughters from being carried off. In Act Two, he visits the family cemetery to plead for mercy from his ancestors for having told a fib and thereby bringing dishonor upon the family. Young Frederick reminds the Major General that he had just bought the manor and the cemetery a year ago, making Major General admit he is a descendant by purchase. Also, Ruddigore's Mad Margaret first appears in a cemetery, and one of the other characters, Sir Riven Murgatroyd, who is compelled to commit a crime every day as part of his family curse, appeals to a gallery filled with portraits of his ancestors to free him of the curse. In fact, Sir Riven's sounds uh, Sir uh, Riven sounds like Edgardo when he says, "O my forefathers, wallowers in blood, there came at last a day when, sick of crime, you each and every bowed to sin no more, and so in agony called welcome death to free you from your cloying guiltiness. Let the sweet psalm of that repentant hour soften your long dead hearts and tune your souls to mercy on your poor posterity." Well, back to our story. The crowd comes in, mourning Lucia's situation. Edgardo hears this and is struck to the heart. Raimundo, that harbinger of joy, enters and tells Edgardo that Lucia is dead. Actually, Raimundo tells, uh, tells him that she is no longer on earth, but in heaven. Uh, of course, this is a rather remarkable claim insofar as she has just murdered her husband. I suppose one must take into account uh, her mental state at the time. Nevertheless, I, uh, uh, declaring someone to be in heaven, in fact a saint, requires a very solemn process known as canonization. However, Raimondo, we recall, is a Calvinist minister, so his ignorance of such things is pardonable. Edgardo, overcome with grief at the news, draws out a dagger and plunges it into his heart. 
He believes that in death he will be united in heaven with Lucia. Without a doubt, I believe in God's mercy. However, Edgardo should have consulted a moral theologian before making such a rash decision. He dies, but not before finishing his aria, and thus denying Enrico one last appearance on stage. The end. Lucia de Lemamore is a fine example of 19th century bel canto singing, filled with lots of flashy voice work for the soloists. The plot is pretty straightforward as far as opera plots are concerned. Although I've never seen a live performance of the show, the video versions are enjoyable. If you have the good fortune to see Lucia de Lamamore, I don't suppose you will have the equal good fortune of hearing a glass harmonica. Uh, this might be just as well, since I doubt many people would come to an opera that comes to a notice uh, that comes with a notice from the Surgeon General warning that listeners to it may cause one to go mad. In any event, listen at your own risk.